This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. When you watch a University of North Carolina game, whether it's football or basketball, you can't miss Ramsey's. It's hard not to miss the large furry ram with the yellow horns and the Tar Heel jersey who's bounding around working the crowd. And when you see Ramsey's, whether you know it or not, you also see Jason Ray. A decade ago, Jason was the one inhabiting that costume on the sideline during games. But on March 26, 2007, he was hit by a car while walking to a hotel in Fort Lee, New Jersey. The accident devastated Jason's friends and family, as well as the North Carolina community that had come to know him. Today, students who don the Ramsey's costume at UNC also wear a patch with Jason's initials on the Tar Heel uniform. But Jason's legacy goes far beyond Chapel Hill. That's because Jason was an organ donor. Ten years ago, Wayne Drays wrote the original story that looked at the impact of Jason's life and death on those around him, including the countless families he would never know. That story, called Ray of Hope, was a part of the first episode of ESPN's E60. And now, as the show marks ten years, Wayne returned to see the impact Ray left in the world. On today's show, Wayne looks at how Jason's parents continue to feel the loss of their son and how he changed the lives of those people who received his organs. Before we get into today's show, a little bit of housekeeping. If you like listening to Double Truck Stories, I would appreciate it. We'd all appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show on whatever podcast player you listen to all of your favorite shows. Join me after the show as Wayne stops by to talk about tracking down the families that Jason influenced today. And now, here's a decade of hope written and read by Wayne Drays. Up the beige carpeted stairs and a quick turn to the right, Charlotte Ray arrives in the room where she goes to remember. She pulls out the black leather chair from behind her son Jason's desk puts her feet atop the University of North Carolina Tar Heel stool at the foot of his bed, and escapes. She looks at the quilt on his bed, made from 59 of his old favorite t-shirts, and remembers the laughter and joy in every one of them. The room has gone virtually untouched since March 26, 2007, the day Jason died. It's a moment frozen in time, with window curtains kept closed to keep the sunlight from fading any of the memories. I like to come in here if I'm having a bad day, Charlotte says. I'll sit here and remember him lying in that bed as a little boy. I can see him lying there doing that. It brings me some peace of mind. This is the boyhood room of a 21-year-old college senior who had dressed up in a yellow-horned ram costume to portray North Carolina's team mascot, Ramsey's. The room is complete with an old flip phone and a dust-covered VHS tape of Dumb and Dumber. On a bookshelf sits Jason's AP Statistics textbook, a 2006 travel guide for Italy, and his high school class ring. There's a collection of Jason's trophies from basketball and karate, he was a black belt, and a prayer rug a family friend had brought back from Saudi Arabia. He just thought that was the greatest, Charlotte says. The walls are still covered with posters of the band's Audio Slave and Rage Against the Machine and of college basketball blue buds, Kentucky, where his family is from, and of course, North Carolina. Charlotte shuffles to a bookshelf and opens Jason's black leather wallet, given to her on that nightmare of a day ten years ago. Inside is his driver's license, expired credit cards, and a $20 bill. On the wall, there's a UNC poster he pinned up the day he returned from his college visit and insisted he'd be going to school in Chapel Hill. And the red scarf he got in Pamplona, Spain, when he ran with the Bulls. The bulletin board above Jason's desk has gone virtually untouched since the last time Jason was here. There's one small addition. A ticket stub from the Broadway show The Producers, dated March 23, 2007. It was at that show where Jason accidentally left his driver's license, forcing him back into New York City to retrieve it the next day. 
When Jason returned to the team hotel in New Jersey and the rest of the spirit squad was out, he made his fateful walk to the gas station. I don't know, Charlotte says. I just felt like it was important to have that up there. Emmett Ray, Jason's father, spends far less time in his son's old room. It's just too hard. They've tried to pick up Jason's room a couple of times, and they've never gotten very far. They know how this might look to some people, that they're still in mourning and can't move on. But that isn't exactly true. I'm not crazy in thinking he's coming back, Charlotte says. I just can't bear to touch any of it. We tried to go through it and get rid of stuff, and you start reading this or seeing that, and you're messed up for the next two days, Emmett says. You got this big damn lump in your throat. Can't hardly talk. Ten years and we haven't gotten it picked up yet, but I don't want to clean it up, and that's just fine. It's been ten years since Jason Ray was hit by a car outside a hotel in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Ten years since Charlotte and Emmett followed Jason's wishes and allowed him to become an organ donor. They're doing better today than they ever thought they would. Still, it isn't easy. How do you process the fact that the world praises a selfless decision your son made that may have saved lives, but for that to have happened, your son had to die? How do you sit at a dinner table with Jason's old high school and college friends, most of whom are now married with children, and listen to their stories about preschools and nap schedules, and not wonder how different life might have been had Jason not left the team hotel that day to go to the gas station for that Coke and burrito. They try to numb the pain by building on Jason's legacy. That legacy which is far beyond the extra years Jason's organs gave to David Irving, Ronald Griffin, Antoine Hunter, and Dennis Corzelius, the four men who received Jason's organs. And it has reached beyond the 118 people in 26 states, as well as Canada, between the ages of 12 and 93, whose lives Jason has improved through tissue donation, according to the Musculoskeletal Transplant Foundation. It's the thousands of people who connected with Jason's story and elected to become organ donors, and the lives those people might someday save. After Jason's death, the Rays and Jason's four recipients agreed to meet and share their story with ESPN's E60 to raise awareness about organ donation. According to Donate Life America, Ray of Hope prompted more than 50,000 Americans to become organ donors. Today, every high school health class in New Jersey watches the E60 story which originally aired in October of 2007. The same holds true in almost every driver's education class in North Carolina. Emmett and Charlotte have shipped thousands of copies of the story and have traveled the country sharing Jason's tale. It's not unusual for them to be sitting at a diner somewhere and get recognized as Jason's parents or those organ donation people. I think it's reached a stage where it's taken on a life of its own, Emmett says. It amazes me when I think about it. I often wonder what Jason would say about all this. I'm sure he'd be proud. A year after Jason's death, Emmett and Charlotte began the Jason Kendall Ray Foundation. The organization has raised more than a half million dollars to help families of those who need transplants, be it funds for a hotel stay or a gas card or even help to make a house or car payment while the recipient recovers from surgery. In April of 2016, University of North Carolina Hospitals renamed its transplant center the Jason Ray Transplant Clinic. Inside the door of the clinic, there is a portrait of Jason and a plaque commemorating his selfless act. Emmett Ray was visiting the clinic one day last year when he was caught off guard by a nurse answering the phone. Good morning, the Jason Ray Transplant Clinic. I lost it, Emmett says. It just sort of hits you. Before the Duke-Carolina football game in September, the university surprised the Rays by bringing them onto the field to announce that a special patch would be added to the uniforms of both Ramsey's and Ramsey's Jr. for the rest of the school year. Emma and Charlotte couldn't have been more proud. As they posed for pictures with the current Ramsey's, Charlotte rested her head on his shoulder. To everyone else, it's just a Carolina mascot. But to the Rays... The young man in that suit stirs vivid memories of their son. 
Sure, it's weird, Emmett said. We always think of him when we see Ramses. But everyone who has put on that costume after Jason, they've always treated us like royalty. But it is back in that bedroom at the top of the stairs where Jason is remembered and honored most. Every month, Charlotte switches the quilts made from Jason's T-shirts. She sits in that chair, closes her eyes, and pictures her boy asking when they can go to the library to check out more books. Not a day goes by that Jason's name doesn't come up, Charlotte says. She and Emmett agree that Jason's decision to become a donor and the far-reaching impact of that decision have made life easier. That doesn't mean they wouldn't trade at all to have their son back. We still have our moments, Emmett says, but I think we're doing okay. Added Charlotte, I never thought I'd be where I am today. I didn't think I could exist without Jason. But all these great memories I have, that's what's carried me through. Ronald Griffin As the clouds begin to fade and the late afternoon sun shines on the somber cemetery grounds, Stephanie Griffin strolls along the freshly cut grass, searching for plot 4458, the final resting place of her husband Ronald. It's been six years since Ronald Griffin died at his New Jersey home from heart and kidney failure, but this is Stephanie's first time visiting his grave. There were so many times I wanted to come, she says, but I just couldn't do it. My daughter and I would say we were going to come, and then it wouldn't happen. I guess I tried to hold on to the life part of it, not the death. But on this day, she finally feels ready. With each step, the numbers climb. Four, 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 one. Four, 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 two. Four, 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 three. We're getting closer, she says. She carefully walks between the gravestones, two more rows, and then she sees it in a row all by itself. Ronald Griffin, MM3, U.S. Navy, Vietnam, March 11, 1949 to May 25, 2011. Always in our heart. Stephanie kneels down and picks up a purple piece of fabric that has landed on the grave. She rips away patches of crabgrass that have grown around the gravestone's edges. A tear begins to fall. It's just the fact that he didn't make it, she says. But he really enjoyed the time he was here. He enjoyed people. He enjoyed life. He was always joking around. He's probably joking right now. It was in March 2007, after 13 years of battling congestive heart failure and cardiomyopathy, that Griffin received Jason Ray's heart. At the time, he couldn't walk or talk. He could barely breathe. The only thing keeping him alive was a left ventricle assist device that pumped his heart for him. But in his four years after the transplant, everything changed. Ronald went for walks. He refused to miss a family reunion or party. And instead of always focusing on the past, he soaked up every second of the present snapping photos of flowers or parks or anything in life that grabbed him. He wanted to preserve every memory, Stephanie says. He did everything he could to hold on to his second chance and cherish the things that most people take for granted. In the wake of the transplant, the Griffins built a friendship with Jason's parents. Together, they would travel the country speaking about the gift of organ donation. Every month, Stephanie would have $50 automatically withdrawn from her bank account for a donation to the Jason Ray Foundation. Those donations still happen today. It's the absolute least I can do, she says. In 2009, Ronald Griffin's kidneys began to fail, and he ended up on dialysis. Two years after that, when Stephanie was returning to New Jersey from their granddaughter's graduation in North Carolina, Ronald failed to show up for dialysis and was found unresponsive at his home. The theme of the funeral was Pass It On, a tribute to Jason. Before Ronald's casket was closed for a final time, Stephanie placed a UNC decal inside. He and Jason were together forever even before Ronald died, Stephanie says. That bond was from day one, and it will never end. Stephanie stands up and stares at her husband's grave. She talks about how proud he was to be in the Navy 
and how he always wanted a small anchor on his necklace to commemorate the time he served. But he never got one. After he died, Stephanie bought a tiny anchor that spins around her bracelet. It catches on my clothes all the time, she says. I know that's Ronald tugging at me. Before she says goodbye, promising to return soon, Stephanie kneels before her husband's grave one last time. She spots a small hole at the base of the granite stone. This must be to put a flag in, she says. Don't worry, Ronald. I'll bring you a flag. Six days later and 500 miles to the south, Stephanie stands behind a lectern at the Carolina Club on the UNC Chapel Hill campus during a fundraiser for Jason's foundation. She shares Ronald's story. She thanks Emma and Charlotte for the four extra years their son gave her husband, as well as for their friendship. When she finishes speaking, everyone in the room stands to applaud. It is the only standing ovation of the night. And as she walks back to her seat, Stephanie stops to hug Emma and Charlotte. She has but one thought. She wishes Ronald were here to do the same. David Irving Ten years after David Irving received a kidney and pancreas from Jason Ray, his prognosis is as promising as ever. The doctors are amazed, Irving says. They've told me I could go another 20 years. Irving, who is 50, has battled diabetes since he was 13 and now lives in a senior living apartment complex where he's become the unofficial maintenance man, installing air conditioners and replacing light bulbs for elderly neighbors. I don't ask for their money, he says. I just like to help. Irving had testicular cancer in 2010, but says he's been doing fantastic ever since. He calls Emmett and Charlotte Ray every couple of weeks and sends them a card with a picture of himself on every holiday. His bowed leg has been surgically repaired, and he walks five miles twice a week. It takes him three to four hours. I love it, he says. Dennis Corzelius Life has not been easy for Dennis Corzelius since his liver transplant ten years ago. Corzelius, now 53, says he has been in and out of the hospital more than 20 times in the past decade with everything from pancreatitis to blood clots to complications from diabetes he contracted after the transplant. If there's a 1 in 10 chance of getting something, I'm going to be the guy who gets it, he says. My friends call me indestructible. My wife says, the devil doesn't want me yet. Corzelius, who was married two months before his transplant, has since been divorced and remarried. Though the scar from his transplant has faded, its importance to him hasn't. I wear it with pride, he says. Without the scar, the only scar I would have is the one where they open me up to throw all my away. Antoine Hunter. A letter from Antoine Hunter to Jason Ray, as told to ESPN senior writer Wayne Drays. Dear Jason, I'm sorry. Twelve years ago, you made the selfless decision to become an organ donor, a decision that saved my life. You and I never knew each other, but after your fatal accident in March of 2007, I received one of your kidneys. We were forever linked, and my life would never be the same. After the transplant, I felt like Superman, a rock star. I was 16 back then. I had lived with one functioning kidney since birth, and the second failed when I was a teenager. But your gift was a dream come true. I could play basketball and football and work out. Classmates would ask me for my autograph. Now, a decade later, I'm 26. I have two precious little girls, Jalen, who is four, and Amaya, who is two. I'm engaged to be married next summer to the woman of my dreams, Cecily Derrick. But life is far from perfect. For the past year and a half, I've struggled to tell your mom and dad what's going on with me. I've started emails and then deleted them. I've picked up the phone and put it back down. I didn't know how to tell them. I didn't know what to say. The truth is that your kidney has failed, and I blame myself. Back when I was a teenager, there were days when I would feel so good, so normal, I would skip my rejection medicine and not think twice about it. 
Later, I started taking generic medicines from two different pharmacies. They didn't work together the way doctors prescribed, and by the time I realized this could be a problem, it was too late. I never felt sick or tired. There were never any symptoms that anything was wrong. But two years ago, I contracted a urinary tract infection. In the hospital, my creatinine level spiked, and the next thing I knew, doctors told me your kidney had failed, and there was nothing they could do to save it. I went into a deep depression, wondering why this had happened to me. One doctor told me they couldn't find any anti-rejection medicine in my system. He accused me of not taking any medicine at all. It wasn't true. Did I miss a dose here or there? Absolutely. I know now it was dumb, but I never quit the medicine altogether. Another doctor told me I shouldn't have mixed the medicines. Another said the medicine could have nothing to do with it. My body could have just rejected the kidney. Whatever the reason, in May of 2016, I joined more than half a million other Americans battling kidney failure. Three days a week, I wake up at 4.45 in the morning to head to the local dialysis center near my home in Irvington, New Jersey. There, my blood is cycled through a machine and cleaned for four hours. The dialysis is draining. It's as if I'm a superhero, and the dialysis is my kryptonite taking away all my powers. I hate needles, always have, and now they're a constant part of my everyday life. I'm on a strictly portioned diet, and I'm not allowed to drink more than seven cups of fluid a day. I don't urinate anymore. That's weird. And because of the port in my chest, I can't even take a shower. I just sit in the bath, and my fiancé helps me wash my upper body with a washcloth. I wish I could find a time machine to go back and tell 16-year-old Antoine to get it together, to do everything in his power to protect your kidney. Instead, I'm again on the list waiting for a transplant. My mom and I have traveled to register on the various recipient lists in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Florida, and yes, North Carolina. In North Carolina, we visited your transplant clinic. Your photo on the wall gave me chills. I felt so incredibly guilty. Not a day goes by that I don't think about you. Every night you were in my prayers. I don't know if you can hear me, but the message is always the same. Thank you, and I'm sorry. You gave me so much, and I feel like I let you down. That's why I haven't reached out to your mom and dad in so long. What would I say? I don't even know the words. For so long, I just wanted to crawl in a hole and hide. Thankfully, my daughters and my fiancé pulled me out of that funk. In church, I prayed over my guilt and realized I needed to pick myself up. I needed to fight. And that's when my mom and I started getting back on these lists to see if my prayers could be answered one more time. Twice now I've gotten the call that they found a match, and there's a kidney for me. But both times, blood work revealed that my antibodies were too high. My body was likely to reject the new kidney, so it went to someone else. I don't know what's going to happen. I just try to stay positive, hoping there will be a medicine or a treatment that will bring my antibodies down so if I ever get that call again, my body will be ready. This time, I know I won't make the mistakes of the past. This time, I know my luck will be different. People have told me that transplants are often hardest on teenagers. They're old enough to understand what's happening, yet not mature enough to handle it. I try not to think about that. I try not to make excuses. Instead, I focus on taking care of my body and helping others learn from my mistakes. I know I need to be here for my girls, and that's my motivation. Late last month, I was at a health fair when I ran into a representative from the New Jersey Sharing Network. His name was Keith Gerald. Your mom and dad and I spoke at his school in New Jersey back in 2007. At the health fair, Keith looked at me like a celebrity. We took a selfie, and he asked if I would be interested in speaking. I told him absolutely. And a week later, I was on stage at that same high school talking about the importance of organ donation and making the most out of every opportunity in life. In the end, I just wanted to say thank you for the blessing you gave me. 
your kidney helped me become a father. Soon, I'm going to become a husband. My family is my world. I can't imagine life without them. And for that, I thank you. Again, I'm sorry. I plan to call your mom and dad and tell them the exact same thing. As a parent, I get it now. I can't imagine what they've gone through. But I want to talk to them. I want to visit them in North Carolina at your home. Until then, just know that I won't stop fighting. Regardless of what has happened inside me, you are my brother for life. Nothing will change that. And I owe it to you, your parents, and my family to fight as hard as I can, as long as I can, until the day that phone call comes. Thank you for everything. Antoine Hunter. Welcome back. That was A Decade of Hope, uh, written and read by Wayne Drays. And Wayne's here in studio. Thanks for being here, Wayne. Really excited about it. Thanks for having me. Uh, and thanks for reading as well. Um, so this is obviously an, an, an interesting story for you. You know, uh, you did the original piece 10 years ago. Now you came back to look at um, where things are now. Um, is that, you know, what was that process like for you in terms of um, digging back in? You know, did you have some of these these sources, these people, were you tracking them? Did you have to sort of start from scratch? Where, where did that process begin for revisiting this piece? Yeah, so, I mean, when you do a piece like this, um, you know, a, a real emotional piece, you know, you, you often uh, keep in touch with the characters, and that was certainly the case with uh, Jason's parents, Emmett and Charlotte. I've kept in touch with them over the years. Uh, talk to them a couple times a year, usually around Jason's death or a birthday, something like that. Um, but but the recipients, um, I had fallen out of touch with. Um, the last time I had talked to Stephanie was uh, when Ronald had passed away, mm-hmm. um, and those phone numbers no longer worked. Uh, Dennis, I had only communicated with, or, or I should say seen, on Facebook. And Antoine, I had not talked to, I, I mean, I don't know how I talked to him since the story ran, to be honest. Right. And, you know, I, I had heard st- David Irving, it was easy to track down. And he was the one who, he's kind of the glue in the group, uh, who talks to a lot of people and seems to know what's going on. And he was the one who said to me, you know, he had heard that Antoine's kidney had failed and, you know, he had stopped taking his medicine and the doctors were upset and all of this. And so I had uh, an idea going in that that would be the interesting part of the story but the challenge was um, was finding these people. And with Antoine, I think I ended up getting a hold of his mom um, just through like an open records type thing and, and tracked her down that way. Dennis was Facebook. Uh, Stephanie, I'm trying to remember exactly. I think, I think Charlotte had Stephanie's new phone number and gave it to me. Um, and then you just start the process again. I mean, these are people that, you know, have been through a lot and have gone through this process of reporting with me already. So... Um, in many ways, you know, you know what you're going to get with them and they know what you're going to get with me. And so that makes it a lot easier. Right. But in terms of sort of writing those those updates, um, you know, how deep did you want to go? Because there's there's obviously some aspects of this is, you know, what is your quality of life now? You know, how do you feel about this legacy? Um, how, how deep did you want to go and sort of delving into where they're at right now? Yeah. So for me, you know, when when I talked about it with my editors, the thing that we sort of agreed on was, look, if, if, if you remember the story from 10 years ago, the first thing you're going to think is, I wonder how those people are doing. Right. And we're going to have to, at the very least, give them uh, 100 words, a 30-second soundbite, something, a, a photo, something to say, here's Dennis or here's David today, mm-hmm. bare minimum. And then depending on what the stories were, um, you know, dig deeper, you know, I didn't want to necessarily write 8,000 words and I don't think we needed a new uh, 20 minute TV piece. Um, But, you know, the way it worked out, especially with the online piece, look, spending that half hour in Jason's bedroom with Emmett and Charlotte is incredibly powerful. And you learn so much about what they've gone through this last decade through, through that, that half hour, through that experience. And similarly, 
you know, with Stephanie when she said she had never been to his grave before, to Ronald's grave, and that was the first time she went with us. Incredibly powerful. Right. And then lastly, you know, like I said, I'd heard of what was going on with Antoine, but to meet him, see him, hear his side of that story, and hear uh, the guilt he's wrestling with in his voice, um, you know, that's, you know, I said to him, I said, hey, I said, you know, would you want to write a letter? Uh, to Jason. I just figured that there's nothing more powerful than hearing what he's telling me through his voice. Right, right. Um, and so in those three cases, it was worth, you know, expanding more and, and, and giving the reader more. So as you mentioned, the um, the scene that, that begins the piece with, with Jason's parents, um, was that something that you had known previously, that the room had basically just been sort of trapped in time and uh, you know, that, that just, you know, that seems like something you hear automatically and you think, oh my God, like this is, this has to be some, some centerpiece of the story. Um, how'd you first discover that, you know, did you talk with them about, you know, wanting to go in there? Were they open about doing that? How, how did that process? Unfold? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I said, I know them pretty well, but it's still really delicate. And so the day that we went to their house um, in September and did the photo shoot and recorded the audio, um, you know, I just kind of casually brought it up, like, you know, what, you know, what's, what's Jason's room like these days out of curiosity, just in conversation, not even in sort of any sort of formal interview setting. And then Emma Sardi's like, you know, he's like, we've tried to clean that up. And every time you get that lump in your throat and I just, you know, I just can't do it. And so right then and there, I was like, okay, I want to, I want to, I really want to go see this. And so there was a point when our photographer was setting up with his assistant, we kind of had some downtime and, uh, and Emmett said to Charlotte, he said, uh, Charlotte, uh, Wayne, Wayne wants to go up and see, uh, see Jason's room. And Charlotte's like, well, okay, like, come on up. You know, here's the thing, you know, a, a small, small segue, you know, Justin, in a lot of these stories, the moments that we feel as journalists are overstepping our bounds or are, you know, like emotionally challenging, you know, they want to go through it. Jason's mom wants to walk me in that room and show me everything and tell his stories. It keeps him alive. Mm-hmm. It's the closest thing she has to him being alive. And so as much as an outsider, you might think, well, that's a little, is that too much? You know, she didn't want to leave the room. I mean, we were in there talking and talking. When Emmett came up for a few minutes, you could tell he was less comfortable. But Charlotte would have sat there all day and gone through every single piece of everything in the room and told us about it. I mean, yeah. she that's all she wants. And so, um, you know, when you, and then you're standing there and she explains the quilt with the T-shirts and, you know, the, the things that really stood out to me, um, you know, and obviously they're in the piece, the, the flip phone, which is just, I mean, I, I looked it up. The iPhone was introduced the year Jason passed away. And so that is immediately tells you what we're talking about in time. Um, and then the VHS tape sitting in his room of Dumb and Dumber, like we don't have VCRs anymore and like tapes sitting around our room. But a 21-year-old college kid 10 years ago, of course he did. And then the ticket stub from him, you know, going uh, to see the producers and leaving his driver's license there and sort of the catalyst that started this incredible chain of events. Yeah. Um, you know, it's incredible. It's it's And, and I think, you know, I, I've said to people too, look, like it's easy for a lot of people to look at that and go like, well, these people haven't moved on. You know, why, why you know, they're dealing with their grief in a whatever, inappropriate way, whatever the case may be. Um, and Emmett's the greatest thing to me. He said, I don't care what anybody thinks. And quite frankly, it's not bothering anybody. If we want to leave his room that way and keep all that stuff up until we're gone, who cares? Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's right. You know, we can't tell people how they should or shouldn't grieve such a horrific tragedy. So it was interesting. It, you know, it felt in many ways almost like a, like a museum. Yeah. That's what it, that's what it definitely read as. And um, for you, when you were in that scene, and I want to, talk about this from a couple of ways, but you being there in the room, you know, how are you sort of looking at getting detail about like, what are the things to emphasize there? Like you said, the flip phone, uh, you know, the ticket stub, how, how are you just taking everything in? So, so two things, first of all, um, I have my, you know, recorder or whatever, my iPhone in my pocket recording all the audio. So I'm not worried about anything Charlotte is saying, unless it's an incredible quote. I definitely want, um, to make sure I write down. Other than that, all I'm writing in my notebook is scene and color. What I see, 
um, the shades of things, um, and I'm just going, you know, everything that, that grabs me, that stands out to me, I'm just writing and writing and writing. And then later when I go to the hotel that night, you know, I'll take all those notes, put them in my computer, and match them up with the audio of what she said. So that, you know, not having to worry, I mean, I'm still listening, obviously, but not having to worry closely about what she's saying frees, frees me up to take in the scene um, and, 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 and sort of write what I see and, and write what I feel to right. things that are running through my head. Right. So, so being his parents once again, and, and like, it sounds like that you've been in contact with them. So it's not like you're reinitiating the relationship, but coming back to them 10 years later, you know, what, what was it that you pitched to them or what was it that you said to them? Like that the reason that we wanted to come back and, and specifically what did you want to talk with them about? Um, you know, I told them that we wanted to, in a simplest way, you know, revisit the recipients and how they're doing and do those updates. But for them, um, I, I told them I want to know how you guys are doing and what your life is like now. You know, um, what is it like to be, you know, I touched on this in the piece, but to be at a diner and have a table of high school kids recognize you and start whispering and being like, oh, my gosh. And knowing you know what's going on. And then they finally prompt one of them to come over and say, um, you, know, are you, are, you know, are you those organ donation people? Like, what is it like to have that? And, you know, there's, uh, you know another scene that I wrote about in the piece, when we were at this, this, this dinner for Jason's foundation, you know, Emmett and Charlotte, I sat with them at their table, and many of Jason's friends were at the same table. Yeah. That yeah, was yeah, and they're all talking about their kids, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like it just hit me, like, you know, and these are people that I met ten years ago. Jason, these were his boys in his house, right? That mm-hmm. like he would party with and go to class, and like these are his college boys. His life stopped and and is over on that day. Well, obviously, all their lives keep going. Yeah, and so you know, I'm meeting their wives, and they're showing me pictures of their kids, and 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 talking about preschool, and I'm thinking like, what what are Emmett and Charlotte thinking or feeling? as this is all going on, um, you know, and that's, that's what I kind of want to try and get at and, and try and understand, like, look, and, that, and I think that's one of the reasons this story was sort of so impactful in many ways is, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen to a parent has, and, and all the pain and grief that comes with that. I mean, I, I can't imagine as a parent myself getting that phone call and having to go to the hospital, all these things has brought, so much good to the world. And how do you balance that? Right. You know, how do you sacrifice, like, you know, are, are you are you okay with that? Like, how do you deal with that? I mean, it sounds like it's it's a very living kind of day-to-day pain, you know. Like, the you, you alluded to this so many times in the piece, the, the, the loss, but also everything that they've been able to do, not just through the foundation, but obviously through the organ donation. Um, but going back to something you said earlier, this is, I feel like this is a topic that, you know, as a journalist, we probably talk with friends about a lot who are not in this business, but approaching these kind of situations, whether it's with Jason's parents, um, whether it's with Antoine um, or Stephanie, you know, where it's, it's very sensitive and you don't want to be a ghoul, but you have to do a job in a way. Um, how, how do you approach that? You know, as you said before, it seems like to you, to some extent, these are stories that people want to tell, but there's always some hesitation about finding that line. Well, you know, I will tell you that despite the relationships that I have with these people, that I've known them for 10 years, that I've gone through this process with them already on, on, on the original story, I will tell you that even now, given all that, there was still anxiety reaching out to them and seeing how they're doing and, you know, how is Antoine going to react with everything he's gone through? And, um, you know, I, I weighed with whether or not, you know, when I asked Stephanie about going to the cemetery, I didn't know she hadn't been there. Um, I was just thinking in terms of, I mean, truthfully, that that would be an amazing scene for the story. I was right. thinking of the story. And, and part of me too, look, I knew Ronald. He was a great guy. And I kind of wanted to go myself. So, you know, but it still took me a couple days before I, you know, got the nerve up, you know, that day to text her. You know, here's our plans for tomorrow. Is there any chance of going to the cemetery? And not until we picked her up did she explain to us, uh, you know, this is my first time going. And literally, I mean, she gets in the car with a map. I mean, she's yeah. a map of how to get there and a, a plot of the cemetery, and we're trying to find it. I mean, like, it was crazy. Um, 
So, you know, I, I can tell you a, a quick story, Justin. There was probably no moment that was more, um, you know, anxiety-ridden than the very, very first time I met Emmett. And this is obviously 10 years ago. This is probably a – this is – I want to say a month or so after Jason had died. And, um, and, you know, at that point, like, these people are all over the news. It's a major story. How do you, you know, get to them? And I ended up um, talking to the pastor of their church and explaining to him who I was, what we wanted to do, how we were invested in the story long term and wanted to really do sort of a deep dive in who Jason was and, you know, the people that he helped save and so on. And so this pastor helped set it up, and Jace, uh, and Emmett picked me up at, at a hotel that was two miles from, from their house in North Carolina, and I don't know this man. Um, and we went to like a, I don't know, like a Texas Roadhouse or a Lone Star State, one of these like, you know, like sort of like, you know, steak places. Yeah. And we sat there, and he didn't have a whole lot to say. And so I spent pretty much the entire meal – um, talking about myself. And I don't mean that in like an, in, in an egocentric <laughs> way, but in terms of like, you know, like here's who I am. Yeah. Like here's what I'm about. Here's why I want to do this. And, you know, he felt comfortable. And after dinner he said, you know, I, I passed that test. And so I got to go to the house and that night sat there with Emmett and Charlotte and did our first interview. And, you know, they, they cried and I got emotional hearing all these stories and from then on, you know, we just built a great relationship and, and, and they trusted me. And I'll tell you, the, you know, these aren't people, um, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but these are not people that trust easy. And they've had a lot of folks come to them and, and want pieces of them for, for stories or for promotional purposes or whatever. And they're very, very leery of that. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, initially, sometimes the subject's, telling them who you are and what you're about and why you care about this and letting them know that, you know, what your intentions are with this. Um, and it doesn't mean you're promising them a great story or anything like that, but just know what I'm trying to get at and who I am as a person is always a way um, to build trust with people. Right. That, um, that sort of relatability is something that can exactly. get, get lost. And in speaking about doing this in the initial reporting, going back in time to, to 10 years ago, um, one thing I'm interested in is this, you know, this story obviously has so many different dimensions to it. And the original version, you know, this is the type of story that, that obviously is just a tragedy on its face. And, and for us as a sports media, uh, sort of empire, um, that, that sort of window into it as him being the UNC mascot, obviously that that's what sort of makes the story, um, something that we would dive into, but. Did it, did it start there and, and go to this sort of next level of everything with the organ recipients? Um, or was that something that was a part of the original so conception of the I'll, case? I'll tell you the story of, of how it all came about, Justin. It's pretty interesting. So when Jason, when Jason was hit by a car, I think it was a Friday, if I'm not mistaken, and we had the news, you know, the AP news story was on the front page of ESPN.com. And our editors and the people that keep an eye on our traffic noticed that the story was being just overwhelmed with traffic and the comments about who this guy was, and they were so sad, and, you know, prayers to the family. And, and, and I shouldn't say, you know, beyond the, the general generic stuff that people would say when the tragedy happens, it was, it was heartfelt, it was personal. And so, you know, I got a phone call from one of my editors, and he said to me, look, he goes, I don't know who this kid is and what the story is, but I think there's something there. Yeah. Look into it. And that was it. And so then I started reading, you know, all the stories that were going on in Carolina and New Jersey about what was going on and who he was. And, and I came across, you know, him being an organ donor. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it was shortly after, you know, I don't remember who did it, but there was a story about uh, Carson Palmer and like getting his like uh, knee ligament or something like that, you know, and, and they went and found that. It was, it was, I don't remember the exact story, but something like that. I said, well, maybe that would be an interesting story. And, um, and so that's sort of what I set out to do. And then I'll tell you, I mean, it took months of working with the New Jersey Sharing Network, um, of having the same conversations of why, you know, they should trust ESPN to tell the story. And, um, and then because obviously it's a super uh, confidential situation. 
So, you know, they would go to the recipient and say, hey, ESPN wants to do this. Would you guys be open to it? Um, and there was a point where, you know, they were interested in potentially having another media outlet do it. And Emmett and Charlotte had said, we feel comfortable with ESPN. We're going to go with ESPN. And, like, I mean, look, like, it's uncomfortable to sit here and have these conversations that you're, like, bartering on people's lives, right? right like, their, right. their, their worst nightmare or greatest blessing we're sitting here negotiating, like who can, you who know, can tell the story. Tell the story you know? And I don't say negotiating, yeah. obviously, with any like money involved, but like just having them convince us, right? And I remember, you know, we went down to the sharing network, you know, Andy Tennant of E60, and a bunch of us went down there and showed them some of the work that we had done. I remember we showed them the the red bandana piece that Red Aldi did, and said, "Look, like this is the kind of work that we can do." Um, and in the end, you know, that's that's kind of how it all came came to be, but. But it started as simply with, you know, there's a lot of traffic on the story. What is it? And then you go, and I would start the reporting and, you know, meet Jason, meet Jason's parents and meet his friends. And I'll tell you, you know, it was it was really fascinating the first time I did it to be in North Carolina. And it's so sad and so heartbreaking. And you're talking to, you know, the girlfriend and the roommates and all these people. It's just so sad. And then I get on a plane in North Carolina and I fly to New Jersey on the same trip. And they meet these people that it's a complete opposite oh end of things where everybody yeah. is so optimistic and thankful and happy. And, and so on know, one hand you have people who it's, it's a future. Yeah. And then on the other, it's, it's, it's the end. It's, it's the end. Yeah. And so, and, and that's when I, you know, was talking with our you know TV producer and I said, look, I said, you know, it would be amazing if we could bring Emmett and Charlotte together to meet, the recipients. And you also have this, you know, amazing cultural background of, you know, Emmett and Charlotte live in uh, Concord, North Carolina, not far from the Speedway. Um, you know, they have a property in Kentucky. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're small town people at their roots. And in New Jersey, where this all happened, I mean, it is, you know, a stone's throw from New York City. There's traffic. There's, it's, it's a totally different world. Right. And that whole element was, was fascinating. I mean, these are people who, Emmett and Charlotte would not on their own go hang out in New Jersey or New York City. Right, the people right. who lived there would never Are end up on the there. prairie, you know, or yeah. whatever in North Carolina. So, so yeah, but I remember, I remember that trip, you know, landing in, in Jersey and starting to meet these people on the interviews and just being like, this is crazy, like these two opposite ends of things. So, The last thing I wanted to ask is, is something a little bit more personal for you because as someone who – uh, and I hope I'm not going too deep here, but as somebody who's had open heart surgery um, and, you know, sort of had to go through the the difficulty of, of you know, what's going to happen next, um, was there any kind of emotional resonance for you going and revisiting this story now and talking to the folks about sort of how they've recovered and, and you know, where they've gone with their life after um, the donations from, from Jason? Um, not really. I mean, you know, the thing that was interesting was – you know, Emmett and Charlotte knew about my situation, um, and I think maybe Stephanie had, but the others didn't know. And so, you know, as much as I'm catching up with them, they're like, you know, what's new with you? And, you know, how old are your girls now? And you know, I'm like, oh, by the way, I have a massive scar on the middle of my chest and almost <laughs> died a year ago, right? And and look, like, like that makes me relatable to them. Yeah. You know, like we, like, you know, we can sit there and talk about, being in the hospital and, 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 and going through that fight. I mean, the situations are different, um, but they're similar. You know, one other, you know, personal thing I'll share is, and, and, and not a lot of people know this, but um, my dad passed away in the Carolina hospital, in the UNC hospital. Really? Yeah. And so my parents retired to North Carolina in like 2001. My dad got sick and he passed away there. And I was living here in Connecticut at the time, and I remember, you know, that day, my mom, you know, it was, it was totally a sudden thing. And my mom said, do you want to see your dad? And I was like, well, I'm like, I, you know, that's, I mean, I have a dead body. I, I don't know, right? And so she said, okay, fine. So my wife and I get on the plane and fly to North Carolina. We get off the plane, and we go immediately to the hospital. We go into the chapel, and, um, and basically they have my dad there. And we sat there, I sat there for an hour, two hours, whatever it was, and just kind of like spent some time with him. And to this day, I tell people that is the single 
greatest gift my mom ever gave me was that time. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And so, you know, I've been back there now for this story three or four times to that hospital. And, you know, I'm from Chicago. I never spent any time in North Carolina. Nobody would have any idea. But I go in that building and like, like when I was there a couple months ago, I'm like, I walk by the chapel. I'm like, that's the room, you know, where I last saw my dad. And so like this place and this story has always been like very personal and very sort of special to me. Um, I mean, Charlotte know that I've talked to them about that. Um, so, you know, like, like I look at things that things sort of, you know, happen for a reason, if you will. Um, and you know, that's something that, you know, I'm is, is, uh, you know, it's just a, just a, a personal connection to that place and that story. And, you know, it's, it's weird, you know, Jason's somebody that I never met that I've never interviewed. Obviously I didn't know him. Um, but I feel like I know him so well. Um, I feel like it's somebody that I've, you know, had beers with and hung out with. It's just, it's just the way it feels. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very special story and a, and a, and a, and a special place. And, you know, I look forward to seeing where these these people are, whether we write about it or not, you know, in, in five years, 10 years, you know, from now. So. Excellent story. Wayne Drays, thank you for being here. Thank you. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash double truck. That's all one word. You can find Wayne's original story on Jason Ray there, as well as the update that was featured in today's episode. You can also watch the feature on E60 on Watch ESPN or stream it through the ESPN app. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio and produced by Michael Ravier. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. Remember, if you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe to Double Truck Stories on the podcast platform of your choice. We'll be back soon with more stories. Until then, I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.